This is Channel 253. In this episode of Interchangeable White Ladies. And now you see us in our modern modern day where it's evident in the world at large, what we would say, what would we label the secular culture, that when women are in places of leadership and power, things get better. They get better. You know? <laughs> um, they, get, they get better. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. One, two, two. interchangeable. White ladies! One, two, two. interchangeable. White ladies! Inter- interchangeable. Welcome to the Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast. I'm Hope. I'm Megan. For today's essential question, what is the role of women in religious communities to call out the patriarchy and fight against injustice in 2021? And today we have with us a very special guest. Tiffany Bloom is the author of Pray Tell, Why We Silence Women Who Tell the Truth and How Everyone Can Speak Up. She is a sought-after speaker, a writer, a podcast co-host of the popular podcast, Why Though? A show answering the existential and nonsensical questions we ask ourselves with author and speaker Ashley Abercrombie. She speaks at conferences and events, and her work has been featured in World Vision Magazine, Publishers Weekly, Weekly Sojourners, Red Letter Christians, and the Version Bible app, Jenny McCarthy. McCarthy's show, and many more things. As a minority immigrant woman with an interracial family, she is passionate about women's equality, justice, and dignity. And I'm sorry I stumbled over that, even though I practice. Welcome to the show, Tiffany. Oh, what a pleasure to be here. Thanks You're for having so me. You're so happy to have you here. So before we jump into the conversation, we are going to go to our trusty segment um, that we lovingly call Ya No Ya. And so just to remind the listeners... Yeah means yeah, no means no, no yeah means sure, yeah no means no, yeah no for sure means yeah, yeah 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 means no, yeah no yeah, I'm willing to do it, no yeah no, there's no way I'm doing it, it's a lot, okay, but just embody the Pacific Northwest woman in us and you will know how to answer it. So I'm going to read some phrase, like, some statements and you'll give your answer. So first, first statement, we're, we're starting off that fall. We're in the fall. We're in September. Pumpkin spice season is the best season of the year. Yeah, no. No. <laughs> and mine is a yeah, no, for sure. Oh, oh that was it. a I yes, man. Try. You messed up. It, I've, like, yes. I know. Listen, <laughs> it just came negative. naturally. Um, the phrase, it's fall, y'all, should be retired forever. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Infinity scarves are still cool and should be worn this fall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> Women should be seen and not heard. <laughs> no. Yeah, no. Yeah, no. Um, there is no problem between Christianity and feminism. Yeah, no. Yeah, no. And then people in power in the church should not get political because it is a conflict of interest. <laughs> oh, I hear a laugh. Yeah, no. I love how I you started her. with like 
you we know, got, standard right? white girl starter pack yep. to all the mm-hmm. way to like Listen, burn I'm a it teacher. Down. I know how to scaffold. You I know? love it. <laughs> I just that was a hard right turn. And I was yeah. just like wasn't we, ready for it. We really uh, slap you across the face <laughs> yes. here at Interchangeable White Ladies. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love so it. Tiffany, if there's what is something that you didn't put in the bio that you think listeners should know to understand you or your context or part of this conversation? What would you add to that? Oh, goodness. I I am <laughs> I'm your standard Pacific Northwest grew up in the 90s white girl at heart. I love Nirvana. I love Third Eye Blind. <laughs> I love Drain. I love <laughs> Natalie Imbruglia. Oh like I love the, the 90s. <laughs> at, at the same time, I love TLC and Biggie and all of those. So I just, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm your standard Doc Martin 90s white girl at heart, <laughs> if that's okay to say. <laughs> it absolutely hey, is. Hey, it's you, so. <laughs> it absolutely uh, is. That like Pacific Northwest totally. like, grunge. Oh, one hundred percent. I also have older brothers who are significantly older than me. So here I was as like an eleven year old mm-hmm. with these almost twenty something <laughs> brothers who at the height of Nirvana. So yeah, yeah. it was a, it was good days. So good, <laughs> so good, good days. So despite that, though, you do define yourself or you also describe yourself as a minority and an immigrant woman. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I want to make sure listeners aren't too confused about what they're yeah. hearing so far. Yes, I am Indian. They don't get to see you. Totally. I'm Indian, uh, despite the voice or the name. That wouldn't give that away. <laughs> um, and I was adopted just shy of my second birthday. And it really... Um, was it? It was. It was not the easiest thing growing up in a rural white community, y'all. I didn't need another person of color until I was in middle school, mm. and wow. so having this experience of being a minority in uh, white majority culture, and then of course nine eleven, and here we are twenty years from mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. happening, and I appear Arab to these people. I became mm-hmm. this interior uh, hate. To be honest with you, yeah. this interior hate I had for my skin and my story was then matched with exterior voices. So it really was a disjointed time in my life to be a minority and let alone come to a love of my first culture and begin to celebrate that and incorporate that in my life and see that as something to celebrate and something to hold dear rather than something to despise. So mm-hmm. it, was a, it was a rocky beginning. And it's something that I would say in the last 15 years, it's been such a joy to discover that this this is who I am and this is what I bring to the world and this unique understanding. And I think especially um, as <laughs> as my life has unfolded and addressing patriarchal structures has something mm-hmm. I have maybe not have chosen for myself, but here I am, Lord send me. Um, it has been eye-opening to see how far behind the white majority culture is in embracing not only people of color, but specifically women of color. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a, like a fascinating like journey of like growing up in the Pacific Northwest that I'm sure versus other places in the country, like see themselves as very like inclusive and right. Mm -hmm. But then it's more covert. 100%. Which then I like as somebody who um, like grew up like pretty racially ambiguous where people just didn't quite know, like the white majority didn't know quite how to place me. They, they, they then internalized othering that happens because of the covertness of the That's right. othering. Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. There's a Columbia professor, uh, Gatnya Spavaki, and she talks about how a minority will subconsciously and consciously contort themselves to fit white yes. majority culture. Mm-hmm. Yep. And 
So much so that we'll do everything to look, speak, act, dress, spend Mm -hmm. like the culture to be accepted, to be seen as valuable. So Mm -hmm. much so that we spend so much time hiding our true identity in plain sight. Yeah. And it's just that's so interesting because I've talked on the podcast before about how my— Um, So I'm Japanese. And so my culture became a quirk, like something that was quirky about me, right, with my friends. And and it was—I don't think that I ever, uh, growing up, recognized or reflected on how damaging that was to my identity because it was just this— like. Almost like a party trick. Yes. Right? And it was meant to entertain— like the white majority of like this little like this really quirky thing about me and we would make jokes about it and I I mean I don't like to no blame right of my friends or my like community because I think that that's just when we talk about that systemic racism when we talk about the internalized Um, the internalized whiteness of the culture here and the internalized misogyny that it, that's that's what it is, is that n- nobody that is in it or most people that are in it don't realize yeah. that they're doing it. And even subconsciously, they were allowed to demean you in that nature, but you were not right. allowed to demean them in that nature. You yeah. weren't allowed to make mm-hmm. them feel uncomfortable with who you were or your identity. Yes. But they were allowed yeah. to put you in that box and identify you as that. Right. And it, yeah, and it's just like there's so many layers to oh it, right? Grace. Where it's like— Truly. Right? There's just a lot of layers to it because— um, I know a couple of my friends listened to this podcast, and when I talked about that episode, it was um, one of them, like, said, hey, like, I remember making those jokes. And it mm-hmm. was at the time that we all would laugh, right? And 100%. I think that there's there's so many layers of the position that, like, white supremacy in our society creates for everybody. Yep, absolutely. And and the reckoning that a lot of people have to go through, which I also, I mean, that's a whole, maybe another conversation, but, like— why so many people are resistant to having that conversation because the like the internal dissonance that you feel or like I'm assuming that you would feel as a white person having participated in that like there's like an internal reckoning that has to happen to say like I participated in white supremacy and potentially made my friends feel less than or contributed to their internalized you know like right. the, their internal turmoil right. and self-identity. And there's like so much. And I I am sure that as like a white presenting woman, I have done the same to my friends of color in some way. But um, yeah, there's a lot of layers there. Truly. Yeah. Well, and I'm wondering, Tiffany, if you could talk a little bit about how you kind of came to this realization for yourself or were there yeah. moments in your journey that brought you to the place that you are today? I mean, you read, you're a, you read, you're a writer, you're a podcaster, you mm-hmm. preach, um, like, I'm curious about what has brought you to this moment and kind of that reconciling of your own sense of self and identity. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in my early 20s, I had the opportunity to visit the orphanage where I was abandoned. And I was, for the first time, sitting in, dare I say, the global majority. You know, there's a billion people in India. And yeah. uh, mm-hmm. and I felt like such an imposter. I didn't feel mm. Indian in America, and I sure as heck didn't feel Indian in India. Mm-hmm. And so it was this understanding that, like, man— you know, part of me is grieving the the fact that I was robbed of my first culture and Mm. the international adult adoptee community. That's a very common refrain. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, here I was in the motherland trying to reconcile my identity 
do I belong here? And I don't speak this language. I don't have these mannerisms. I don't understand uh, the cultures or the heritage or the celebrations. But am I still Indian? Does that mm-hmm. does that make me less Indian? Yeah. And so to really understand that, and, and for me, it was my faith, understanding that the, this is who I am. Yeah. I am not a mistake. I have a sense of agency and power when I choose to to, gra- to grasp onto that, that yeah. this is mine. Nobody's going to give it to me or take it away. And once I stop living out of this scarcity mentality that other people get to define my identity, then and only then can I stand up and own this for who I am and what I is and how disjointed and broken my story may be. It's still my story mm-hmm. and it's still something to celebrate. And I believe that my life is good and that goodness yeah. follows me around. So I'm going to lean into that, walk into that. And so I, like many others, have learned about Indian culture by diving in and reading books about it and memoirs and, um, you know, history and following the politics and really grasping that and spending time uh-huh. with Indian friends in India. Um, and I've had a privilege to go back uh, quite a few times and, and really immerse myself into it. So it's been probably one of the sweetest, one of the sweetest um seasons of my life. Thank you, Mm -hmm. Hope, for asking that, to really lean Mm -hmm. into that and -hmm. understand what it means to be an Indian woman, but also what it means to be an Indian woman in America. Mm -hmm. And and in this diaspora of Indian women, what does that look like in a Western context? Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a lot I grieve, again, that I didn't Mm -hmm. miss of, you know, the anti-culture or (laughs) um, a mother who maybe was overbearing in a way that was for my good but felt too much. You know, some of these things Mm -hmm. I wanted. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the same time, (laughs) there's a lot I probably don't want. So I'm okay with that, too. Yeah. I like how you said some of these things I wanted right at the point you were talking about an overbearing mom. And <laughs> yeah. so I just, I think that's just so funny. That has me well, laughing. when you lost your first one, you, you kind of crave what you don't have. So yeah, sorry yeah. to take yeah. that a little dark, but <laughs> there yeah. you go. No, Definitely. that makes that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I think like such a powerful statement of I am not a mistake. That realization that the life that I have lived up until this point, no part of it was a mistake. I'm just curious how that first trip to India and that realization, how did that change the way that you walked through your life? Oh man, we're going, we're going there, aren't we? Woo, okay. I just need to strap on. I'm like, is there, woo, I've only had one cup of coffee. Okay. Um, so I have, um, I have no record of my mother or father, um, And only a year and a half ago did I even learn the story of my beginning. The woman who took me in at two days old, she tracked me down through her her daughter on Facebook. Her daughter is a professor at a private university in Minnesota um, and lives stateside. And her daughter's college roommate from 20 years ago heard me speak and said, hey, I think my college roommate from 20 years ago, her mom took you in. That's a bold statement, right? That's a bold statement to say, like, I think she took you in. Um, Again, there's 30 million orphans in India at any given time. Yeah. 30 million. So to say, in the mid-80s, this woman took you in. And I said, well, what's her name? And she told me her name, and it was Prem Gideon, P-R-E-M. And I said, that's her. I've seen her name on court documents. And so I got to meet her, and, uh, and she knew I had gone looking for her. When I took my first trip to India. And so toggling, meeting her and hearing my story and combining that with my first trip has kind of put some of the missing pieces together. Um, because mm. when you're when that primal development and primal connection is severed between a mother and father and a baby, like that is 
so inhumane. Yeah. It's inhumane. It is so tragic to the human spirit. And it is mm. very difficult to believe that in your most vulnerable moment that you're valuable or that you're not a mistake. Yeah. And again, this sounds so elementary. I get that as a grown girl, yeah. as a grown woman. It can sound so elementary. But it, you're plagued with this I am different, especially yep. when I grew yeah. up with white parents, mm-hmm. white brothers, a white town. Mm-hmm. I didn't see anyone in media, not in education. Nobody looked like me. Mm-hmm. Nobody, n- not not a soul. Um, and uh, and so going back and sitting among uh, all these little girls who were left um, because they didn't have a dowry, because, you mm-hmm. know, they escaped poisoning. You know, a lot of uh, Indian baby girls that infanticide, um, they feed them uncooked rice and then it explodes in their stomach and kills them from the inside out. Um, it, you know, it's just so much to grapple with, right? Yeah. It's so much to grapple with. And then going there, and she told me the story, if you don't mind me sharing it, because I promise it'll, it'll, it'll hit the spot. <laughs> uh, as I'm sitting there with this woman who took me in, and she says, Abalasha, which was the name she gave me in the orphanage, she said, all I wanted was for you to know the life-saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I don't know how hmm. faith this podcast is, but I'm just going to share that because that's what she actually said. And, uh, <laughs> and, um, and then she sat down, and for the first time, she told me my story. And she said, I had such an insatiable desire to care for a baby. And I didn't know where it came from. We had so many kids in this orphanage and I had kids of my own that I'm trying to, you know, they're about to hit adolescence. And she's like, I couldn't shake it. We didn't really have any babies in there. And I just knew that I was going to care for a baby. And I, I, I was past childbearing age. And, um, and then about three months later, she got a knock on the door. And there I was. And she said, I knew that you were who I was waiting for. And she wow. said, I had to name you Abalasha because it meant desire. You were always Aww. desired. And so she took me in and, and, you know, held me close and rocked me to sleep and all these things that aren't common in an orphanage. Yeah. Uh, you know, wore me and, and kept touch me with her and, and touch and yeah. all of this. You know, eye contact, all of these things that really um, stifle development. Absolutely. Um, she gave all of that to me. And then she said goodbye, just shy of my second birthday. And so for the first time, she got to see me. And um, toggling that with sitting among all these orphans who were just so hungry for a mommy, so hungry for a daddy, just hundreds of them, um, as I was able to visit, it was just this reminder that every life is sacred, every life matters, and we live in this caste system. No matter where you live, you're in the caste system, and it is Mm -hmm. unnecessary, it is demonic, it is evil, and it demonizes the least of these, and it and mostly mm-hmm. brown little girls, brown yep. and black little girls. Mm-hmm. And so whether someone else thinks I am worth anything or not, I mm-hmm. do. And I'll take my place. And you see, especially my, my area of work really focuses on the last hundred years um, of women's advancement um, in the workplace and, and how they contribute to society. Um, but just seeing how... No one gave women permission. Women Mm -hmm. took permission. Women got together and realized we don't need nobody to tell us what we're worth (laughs) or what we can do because we're going to change the world and we are going to contribute to human renewal. I love that. Um, Thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm going to start to say, oh, I'll just take my place from now on. When you said that, I was like, oh, that's good. (laughs) That hits right. I'm going to take my place. (laughs) 
So I think building off of that, I kind of have two questions or two things I'm wondering about. One, I'm thinking about taking your place. And so kind of curious about your comment or some hot takes you have around what do you think the role of women is in religious spaces? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we know yours is more of a Christian context. You can kind of contextualize that for listeners. Um, but I'm also thinking about what you said earlier about being an Indian woman in America and then adding to that in a Christian church that is predominantly <laughs> evangelical and white, right? Yeah. <laughs> so like Ooh. depending on which categories. So kind of both of those things are, are, were rolling around in my head. And I was curious if, you, if you'd be willing to speak to that a little bit. Yeah. Um, so let's start with that first question. Of, uh, can, you, can you share just that first portion of that question again? Yeah. What do you, what's your take on the role of women um, in religious spaces? So women in general in religious spaces, taking their place or having a place. Yeah. Now it's interesting because especially uh, of the Christian tradition, there is such a split within the Christian context at large in faith spaces of do women have a place of leadership? Do women Mm -hmm. not? And I clearly by this conversation hold to an egalitarian position where women are equal with men to the highest level. And this... um, This confusion uh, is really settled and satiated when you look at the first century and for of the Christian tradition, when we look at Jesus Christ and his treatment of women and his elevation of women and his empowerment of women. And you see how through uh, church history, it was more of the church looking like the culture rather than uh, rather than the church looking like the church. So the influence of the first century was that women had no place to vote. They were as low as slaves. Um, They really had no place in society except to bear children. They were to be seen and not heard. They really were pushed to the margins. And so it was outrageously counterculture and, dare I say, progressive for the leader of this religion to say, actually, women belong in every sphere. Their voice matters. Their abilities matter. Their gifts and skills should be honored. And unfortunately, as time went on, and really when you hit the time of the printing press, obviously I'm fast forwarding (laughs) thousands of years. Um, (laughs) When you hit the time of the printing press, this idea was able to be widespread because now it wasn't just um, a man in a collar, a man Mm -hmm. of the cloth telling these messages that women are second or women should be confined to the home. And the early church fathers, again, they got that from the culture rather than from um, from their own faith tradition. So then you move to the time of the printing press, where now in everyone's home, they're told that women are to stay home. So you're able to really cover a lot mm-hmm. of ground um, when the written word is passed. And now you see us in our modern modern day where it's evident in the world at large, what we would say, what would we label the secular culture, that when women are in places of leadership and power, things get better. They get better. You know? <laughs> um, they, get, they get better. The, yeah. you know, safer cities are designed. Better laws are passed that benefit not only men, but women and children as well. I mean, the data is so clear on what Mm -hmm. happens when you empower women to places of power. So now let's talk specifically again about women in faith traditions where whether it's Christianity or another faith, uh, you really are fighting against some doctrine that believes that women are not to be in power. And if they are, you're actually going against the dogma. Yeah. of this faith tradition. Mm-hmm. So that's a pretty that's like, a pretty bold thing to heavy. do, right? To go mm-hmm. but when you look at human development, it's so clear that it takes two <laughs> to make to, to make things work and it takes women in places of power. So um I have found that despite uh egalitarian or an equal setting that I found myself in, 
the same domineering, manipulative, Mm. narcissistic practices against women were employed. So that's my argument is that it doesn't matter if someone claims that they believe that women should have a place of power or not. We still see these narcissistic patterns against women. Women are still the scapegoat Mm -hmm. because we have Mm -hmm. a default as both men and women to believe men's narrative. And that really starts quite young. It can start on the playground when, oh, he pushed me. Oh, you just need to tough it out or it's okay. Or I'm sure he meant well or he likes you. And then you take that into middle Ugh. school where it's very Shame hard. Bell. Oh, yeah. Where's that shame bell? <laughs> there we go. Thank you. There it is. There that's, it is. That's legit. I'm out of bell. I like that. <laughs> um, you see in middle school, it's hard to find a girl who hasn't been harassed by the age of 13 mm-hmm. by a yep. boy. Why? Because that boy wants to be seen as a man by his peers, by other men, and by other girls. And then mm-hmm. you take that into fraternity culture Ugh. where, you know, universities are excusing. Shame it again. Shame, shame it. it. <laughs> universities are excusing. Oh, Greek yeah. life. The behavior, <laughs> the mm. behavior of boys. And then, of course, yep. fraternity Culture is taken into adult life and especially into the church where we believe that men are good and that they have our best interest at heart. And yet it's clear in in places of power. And, and research shows us there's a, a professor from USC, Dosh Keltner, who I'm a big fan of, and he talks specifically about how men handle power. And what happens is as men are placed in positions of power in the early days, you'll often see why they were placed in those positions of power. Perhaps they were benevolent, kind, generous, mm-hmm. um, uh, skilled negotiators or great leaders. They were humble. But then as they have their mm-hmm. ascent to power, they shed those virtues that place them in the <laughs> spot of power mm-hmm. in the first place. And they begin to take on these narcissistic tendencies where they believe themselves to be invincible and more sexually attractive. So then they start to take whatever <laughs> mm-hmm. is in their path that's theirs. Why? Because they believe they deserve it because of the power that yeah. they have. They do not see clearly the needs yes. of others. And they specifically don't see clearly the needs of those who are below them. And so how can a woman coming into that space, whether it be a a faith space or a workspace, see themselves as one who should advocate when we're taught to be nice at the expense of being um, honest Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of our needs and expectations and boundaries? How are we supposed to thrive in those power structures where men have these goggles Mm -hmm. that are given to them, that are given to them by the culture at large? We don't—monsters aren't made in isolation. Absolutely. They are made in community. And so understanding the structures that uphold these abuses of power and these men Mm -hmm. and these predators who abuse their power, um, we can see how— They get what they want. And where it gets real dicey in faith traditions is, well, that's the man of God. That's the holy man. Mm -hmm. He's got the Mm -hmm. word of God for us. Don't question the Lord's anointed. All of these, (laughs) all of these, uh, you know, broad stroke monikers that we give that are not deserved and that are honestly for a Christian faith that are not uh, that are not biblical. We don't see that in the New Testament. You know, there's no appointment and anointment besides Jesus in the New Testament. That's an Old Testament uh, practice. So all that to say, we have elevated these men to the point that they're invincible. And what do we do when 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 two narratives pop up of of power imbalances, we're mm. more likely to believe this man. Why? Because we have already trusted him and believe in him. Mm-hmm. And 80% of us, we have a really hard time changing our first impression. So therefore, yeah. men have mm-hmm. the power, we'll believe their story, and women just need to suck it up. 
Well, on that delightful upbeat <laughs> note, we're going to take a break <laughs> and we're going to continue this conversation and unpack that and talk about um, how women can just take space, take that space um, when we come back. This is Nate Bowling, host of the Channel 253 show Nerd Farmer, and this episode is sponsored by Pacific Lutheran University. If we've learned anything from the last two years, is that the future is unpredictable, which is why education, and higher education in particular, should equip students with the ability to be flexible and innovate. Students should leave college with the determination needed to understand a problem and explore solutions. And they need a spark of creativity so they can find new ways to turn their smart ideas into reality. But these traits and skills can only be set into motion by one thing, transformative care. Pacific Lutheran University is a small private college where caring means more than kindness and consideration. It means bold commitment to expanding well-being, opportunities, and justice. And just let me add an amen to that. Caring helps us all to question paradigms and draw new connections in pursuit of truth constantly challenging ourselves and the world we love to be better for our neighbors, those down the street, and thousands of miles away. PLU is more than a campus full of individuals pursuing their dreams. It's a community of seekers, trailblazers, creators, and reformers who know we can accomplish more together than apart. To apply, schedule a campus visit, or learn more about PLU's undergrad and graduate programs, please visit plu.edu. All right, and welcome back. Just a little reminder that if you are enjoying this conversation, you're loving the podcast, um, I encourage you to become a member of Channel 253, only $4 a month. That is one coffee. You get access to all of the podcasts, but also um, access to a community of people that, you know, are intelligent and thoughtful and are doing the work. So $4 a month. So before the break... Um, Tiffany, you were talking about just kind of how society sets women up. It's almost like to fail right from the start, right? That to pos- men in positions of power, and it just kind of naturally happens. And what's interesting, I was as you were talking, I was thinking about my journey. Um, I've talked on the podcast quite a bit about I was diagnosed with cancer two years ago, and I am currently in the process of working with my therapist around my relationship with male. Um, medical providers and how mm. negative my experiences have been with male medical providers versus my female medical providers. Mm-hmm. And she and I have had so many great conversations and she was talking to me about how um, when we're really young, there are like men hold positions of power and we are taught to just because we see them in these positions of power. We're taken to male doctors. The principals at our school are mostly men, um, you know, and like the, the presidents and like all the leaders are men. And so it's ingrained in us to just trust them yes. and to just accept their word as yeah. it is. And so then when you have a negative experience with them, there is a level of internalized well, what's wrong with me? Like you question yourself. What did I do? Am I not understanding? Like, and that's what it's like. Maybe I just don't understand. Yeah. Um, which is, she's like, it's, it makes you feel powerless. And I think she and I have talked in like, um, we were talking about how a lot of people were saying like, oh, little girl, you need, like families need, parents need to take their little girls to female doctors and they need to show girls, um, women in power. But like, man, you need to take 
your boys Come to on. women doctors. Come like, on. you need yeah, to take right. your exactly. sons. Like, and I think about, like, the rich, um, like, the, the fact that we have a professional women's soccer team playing in Tacoma. You need to take your sons exactly. to go watch the rain play exactly. soccer. Yeah. You need to take exactly. your sons to the Storm, who are, like, yeah. one of the greatest ba- basketball teams of all time. Like, you, it's, it's not about taking your little girls to, like, because you, we need boys that are going to grow up into men to see women as powerful yes and in leadership positions so yes. like as you were talking i was just like yes it's the work that i'm currently doing for myself it mm-hmm. just it is damaging it's yeah. damaging when we place these men in like unquestioned positions of power you know it's mm-hmm. interesting i often get the question um in interviews and conversations oh well i have little boys how do i how do i raise them so they're not accused of taking advantage of women. And I Sorry. said, man, you have little boys. I have two little boys. All I got, I'm, I live with the only boys between my husband and my kids. <laughs> I am surrounded by yes. stinky boys. And I'm like, what an honor. Yeah. What an honor that you have boys yep. to help turn this tide and to invite them to see women mm-hmm. as equal. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. what an honor. And I just want to say, um, <laughs> when you were talking about how oh, we need to take our boys to, to see women in power, uh, a few years ago, my son, he had to be seven, so old enough to know, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he said, so mom, can um, can boys do what you do too? Can boys go <laughs> speak and, and preach and do and write books and stuff? And I'm like, yeah, boo, they can. I'm doing can. it right. <laughs> I know. I, they're like, but can boys do that? Or is that, a, is that something that, that boys would ever be able to do? I'm like, Oh, this is exciting. This is exciting. This is exciting. Yes. So much of this is caught, not taught, as you're saying. Absolutely. We have to just yeah. build this into the framework of their understanding mm-hmm. of what life is and how we exist in the world. Like, we say mm-hmm. all the time on this podcast, like, white supremacy is a white person problem. Like, that mm. white people have to fix it. And if white people don't want to, it's not going to get fixed. <sighs> Misogyny is a man's problem. Yeah. And like, yes. And it's, it's like, it's not going to get fixed unless men want it to get fixed. Right. It and, takes men to fight the patriarchy just yep. as much as it takes women. Yeah. In fact, we need them more. Like, like women to take the space. But yeah, like we can take all the space. But like if there are not men that are going to do the work, like I don't it's not going to happen. Yeah. And like the Mm -hmm. the pressure is what's going to cause the men to do the work. Right. Like from Mm -hmm. women off. That's how like social change has happened. But it's just yeah, it's it's a man's problem. Come on. We wouldn't Mm -hmm. be here. We wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be having this conversation. (laughs) The man hadn't abused his power. Yes. Yeah. One of the things you said um, earlier was uh, being women are being nice at the expense of being honest. Mm. And I was I was thinking a little bit about that and thinking about the role of women in religious spaces, reinforcing that patriarchy. And Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that, like women. And you kind of alluded to it, kind of mentioned it in passing around the fact that we are, um, you know, products of the society around us. And so therefore we're reinforcing these things or we, um, you know, maybe to our own detriment, but maybe accidentally. And I was wondering what your take is around women in the church who are reinforcing um, the patriarchy in these ways, women who have been really bold in talking about, um, you know, putting men first, um, women who've been bold about white supremacy in the church. So a few, well, a little while ago, and listeners, I'll link to it in the, in the show notes, but we've talked a little bit about on the show around just the role of women for that are reinforcing. Mm-hmm. And so I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah. Um, full transparency. This has been the hardest part of my area of work, my area of research. 
and my own personal lived experience is mm-hmm. how women were the chief enablers mm-hmm. of patriarchal practices, the demonization, demonization of other women, mm-hmm. and how they were happy to throw other women under the bus. Because I think as a woman, you appeal to the humanity in another woman. And yeah. so when that is not honored, I, I personally have not found anything more painful this side of heaven than other women upholding patriarchal practices. They're considering, and really what's happening here is they are considering whether internally or, or you know, externally, subconsciously or consciously, examining their proximity to power, mm-hmm. what they have to gain, mm-hmm. what they have to lose. That's what's happening yep. here. And so whether it's in a faith context or not, you see how that game is played and they think, how do I stay the closest to the person in power? How do I stay the closest to this level of power, this perceived power? What does that power Mm -hmm. look like? How does that power act? How does that power spend? Who does that power hang out with? And so how do I contort myself again to fit into that? Mm -hmm. And if that requires turning my back on other women who have, like yourself, Megan, stood up and said, something's not right here. Yeah. And I'm not sure where to take this. I'm not sure where to take the story or where to hold this or what to do with this. But something's not right. You're the first to be dismissed. Mm-hmm. And you see other women practice this mental gymnastics of, yeah. again, giving the benefit mm-hmm. of the doubt to the person who's abused their power. Yep. And it's this confirmation bias because they'll look for continued yes. ways to uh, assume that, no, I made the right decision to entrust my relationship or my belief or the leadership position in my life to this person in power. And I would have to go back and assume that I made a wrong choice. And I'm not willing to do that. I'm not Mm -hmm. willing to admit that I made a poor choice and Mm -hmm. see your suffering and side with you and see how this Mm -hmm. could be harmful. Mm -hmm. I would rather remove myself from the situation and stay on the side of power. Yes. And so we see this time and time again and women choosing men over other women. And uh, even to this day, I think of the women in my life who, you know, quite honestly went to my baby showers and Mm -hmm. were at my wedding and— I broke bread with time and time again, and they chose the side of power, and they chose to turn their backs on their sisters. And it's uh, still—it's something that I— I just can't believe happens. And it, again, I understand it requires yep. such an excavation yeah. of the soul to see how we live in that just world hypothesis of, well, things are as they should be. And if that happened to you, then you clearly deserved it. Because if you didn't, that could happen to me. And I never want to believe that that could happen to me. Yeah. Right. And I think all I hear when you're saying that is like how sad yeah, yep. and scary it all is. Because— I want people to understand, like, there are women that are willing to do what you just described because the alternative is terrifying to them. Yes. The the alternative is not being near power. The alternative is opening yourself up to being ostracized, shamed, hurt um, physically and emotionally, right, that that. I mean, we could have the conversation of like you already are if you are practicing those mental gymnastics, right? But they Mm. don't view it as that. But it just mm-hmm. I think about that is that the the this idea of the alternative in their mind is so much worse, yeah, than denying themselves their right to power as a woman, right. And that to me is just wild. 
It's wild. And I think mm-hmm. uh, at the core of every human, we crave relationship. Yep. And knowing that you could be, especially as, as Hope mentioned, we're talking about faith communities, mm-hmm. to be excommunicated, yeah. to be seen yeah. as yeah. some sort of dissenter is the mm-hmm. worst label of all. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I think uh, for myself, I am a type A girl to play by all the rules. I was mm-hmm. like, purity culture, here for it. This, that, mm-hmm. here for it. Like I, I followed <laughs> mm-hmm. all the rules set out for me by white evangelical culture. I played yes. their game, yes. y'all. I played their game and I still lost. Yeah. I still lost. Yeah. I just, because um, I think about it of like, who's telling them what to do. It's like white men in power, right? Like that right. are preaching about this is what, this is the word of God. And like part of faith well, is just yeah. like, you know, like part yeah. of religion is just having faith and you don't always understand it. It doesn't mm-hmm. all, you know, like it, you don't always understand it, but like that's part of, that's part of it. Right. And that, and that is so quickly turned into manip- manipulation. Absolutely. Because and, mm-hmm. yes. and it were encouraged to trust people who don't deserve our trust Absolutely. in the first place. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, yeah, I was we, just thinking about how much it's cloaked in religiosity, right? right. If you exactly. say God told me, or this is the way of the Lord mm-hmm. or whatever, well, I want to follow the way of the Lord. Like, I don't want yeah. God mad at me. Right. right. So maybe yeah. it's me. And when <laughs> it's we, me, not you. Yeah. When we've had a religious experience at someone's uh, leadership, we attribute so much goodness to that person. Mm-hmm. That person mm-hmm. can do no wrong. Why? Because again, we had a transcendent experience and that was at their doing. Therefore, they're holy. They can do no wrong. And what we do again is beyond religiosity, we allow their charisma to trump any character, any character. Mm-hmm. Like, at the end of the day, faith or not, character matters, y'all. Like, yeah. come on, and that's character. What I mean. The number of women, the mental gymnastics of when Trump was running for president. Yeah. And I mean, what, more white women voted for him the second time around than the first time around. And yep. Shame which, bell, shame bell. I was, I was reaching, I was reaching. Um, but the, the number of women that were like, well, that doesn't impact him as a president. That doesn't impact his ability to do his job. Yeah. And in my head, I'm like, what do you think being a leader is? Like, what do you yeah, think being yeah. a leader requires? Yeah. Because if you think that his character would not impact or like him believing that he had ownership of women's bodies, yeah. if you think that that's not a character flaw that would impact his ability to be president of the United States, like, I don't know what you think being president means. Yeah, 100%. Mm-hmm. Right? I just, it's... It is. And you like you said, the confirmation bias, it's that dissonance. It's like, what mental gymnastics do I have to put myself through in order to still justify voting for a person who I know does not have my best interests at heart? Like it's it's some wild, wild stuff. And I think we've been seeing it happen more and more in the last several years. Absolutely. And with the voting block being so large in the evangelical space, you see how that religiosity, as Hope talked about earlier, we have now placed that on on secular spaces. So Mm -hmm. we we call Trump the Lord's anointed. He's the man of the hour. He's the man God sent us. So now we're cloaking uh, politics in in religious vernacular, and we're seeing the detriment of that for, obviously, the, the Christian witness. But more than that, we are placing these holy guardrails over someone who is doing unholy things. Yeah. And it's just yeah. so, it's bonkers is what it is. Yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah. it's bonkers. bonkers, bonkers. For it. Yeah. But if it, but if it advances the agenda oh, of the top, right. then therefore let's yeah. do it. Right? Let's do Again, it. Again, it goes back to what are we, tr- who are we trying to uh, 
dominate? What are we mm-hmm. trying to accomplish? And if it continually looks like subjugation, then of course mm-hmm. it's always yeah. going to be the way of the powerful. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's what's interesting is throughout this conversation, you keep talking about like historically speaking and how things have changed and altered. And what I always try to talk to my students about is how like we're not that many generations removed from even more horrifically oppressive policies yeah. for yeah. women, right? Oh, or my for grace. right, we're like so close just to it. we're it's not so even funny. we're it's not even funny. And one thing that I have been thinking about as we've been having this conversation is something that one of my coworkers was telling me. She's another history teacher, Hope Bixby, if you're listening. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was talking about how her in her studies she learned about how the Black Plague was actually instrumental in. Um, moving people, individuals away from just listening to the leaders of the church. And they think it moved people more towards autonomy in their faith because so many people were dying that there weren't enough priests to go read them their last rites. So before the Black Plague, a priest was owned, like owned your right to heaven because they, you had to be read your last rites, right? Yeah. And the, they had to come anoint you. And then during the Black Plague, they realized, oh my gosh, we don't have enough. And so then they started printing out papers with the last rites that then individuals, their family members could read to them. And so all of a sudden the shift happened in society, which I still think, I get chills when I think about it, when you think about the profound impact of that, yeah. that all of a sudden people started to question, well, why now? Why can mm-hmm. I read my last rites? And it was this impetus to the Protestant movement, right? Yeah. That all of a sudden people began to have autonomy over their faith. And I just keep thinking like before that you took, you had to take the yeah. word of this person in power because yeah. there was no other way. If they owned God and heaven and religion, right. they chose the king, yeah. like all of that. And I'm just thinking like, that still happens, yeah. right? Like in different yeah. ways. 100%. Right? Where where like unholy people are preaching unholy things, but they're saying, listen, like this is what God says. Yeah. And how do you question that? Like yeah. how have you created a culture where you can question that? Oftentimes in those situations, no. And in a just even, you know, you look at the last hundred years from World War II to now and see how women were needed in the workforce. Mm-hmm. They were never wanted until they were needed. Yes. So to your right. point, it was yeah. this out-of-their-hands situation mm-hmm. that required them to have autonomy and agency. Mm-hmm. And here yep. we are, you know, six million women flooded the yeah. workforce uh, during World War II. And then all the men came home from the war and they yeah. were like, can oh, you, wait a yeah. second. Can you leave now? <laughs> can you imagine like having worked in factories <laughs> and realize that you can, can you? Yeah, yeah, like okay. you can earn your own living and like work in a factory after being told your whole life that you can't and you think your place and then be them coming back and being like, yes, yeah, so you're going to go back. Yeah. And they're like, you're going to listen nah, to me. Bra, I'm going to control nah, all the finances. Yeah. Right. Like I thought it's they're like, such you've a, been gone too long. Yes, it's such a badass thing. Like oh, these I women that were like, yeah, I don't think so. Oh, Thanks, I love though. it. It's, I, I, uh, oh, man. <laughs> It's it's one of my favorite things to research is yes. that um, anyway. So you see how in that time, you know they and then when the men returned, they they were these women were welcomed with sexual harassment, sexual yep. assault on yeah. the job, uh, fourteen hour workdays with no lunch or breaks, yep. um, unsafe work conditions, and they were like, uh, we're not going to stand for this. Just as you mm-hmm. said, Megan, we're not going to stand for yep. this. And together, mm-hmm. not individually, but together, they pushed for agency. They pushed for, pushed for safe working yep. conditions. And we are all living in their wake of it, as we go to work today because of yeah. what they did. And like 
like you said, it only happened because it was needed, not because it was wanted. Yes. We are standing mm-hmm. in how we work in the Western world today because of need, not want. And, hey, mm-hmm. we'll take it where we can take it, right. but we'll keep pushing this on. We'll keep pushing, right? And, yeah. like, the need may be that, like, you put enough social pressure, right? Because exactly. in that same situation, yes, women pushed that, but it was men agreeing to give it, it ultimately, mm-hmm. right? The men in power had to give it. They had no choice if the work was going to get done, especially <laughs> yeah. in yes. agriculture and ammunition. They had no choice. But you're right. Capitalism. Yeah. Capitalism. Yeah. Capitalism. Cap- <laughs> like, yes, yes, capitalism. The, the need for it. Come on, y'all. Capitalism. America. Yes. So to add a layer on, and I know we don't have a ton of time left, but I want to add a little layer and kind of talk a little bit about the perception that Christians are automatically Republican. Yeah. And I was oh, wondering, God. in your experience as a mm-hmm. pastor and as a writer— yeah. How do you how do you address how do you address that? How do you think about that yourself, or um, do you address it in your in the work you do? Um, I really try to lean into the way of the kingdom, in that Jesus was Jesus was obviously very 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 political and very hands on to the empire of his day, and that is our role as well. We are to be resistors of capitalism, resistors of the caste system, resistors of oppression, and that can look that can look that that demands more than Republican or hmm. Democrat. So hmm. my goal is to invite all to the table. I think by being um an immigrant Indian woman, I hope that people wouldn't make assumptions, but I think um, my frustration, and, and I'm sure your listeners know that this idea that Christians are Republican only started in the 70s after Roe versus yeah, Wade. Exactly. So this yeah. is a really, really, yeah. really new concept mm-hmm. um, that's only about 50 years old. And and we'd love to think that this was baked in from the beginning, and it was very much not, especially mm-hmm. when you look back um, to the time of the 30s and 40s, yeah. um, or even when, uh, when food stamps came on the scene and social programs started, uh, especially in the 30s. Um, you see how it was it was a lot of Christians who were Democrats that were were making yeah. making those moves and making things happen. Yeah. Um, and so and in my family, particularly, um, I didn't grow up in a Republican household. So that wasn't what I was swimming in at home. So I think, hmm. um, to be honest, because my my immediate family, my family of origin and my extended family didn't reflect that ethos, um, I came at it with a little bit more hesitation and I wasn't this like <laughs> flag waving little yeah. brown girl who was indoctrinated, which would just be so <laughs> toxic when you really think about it. Um, that image. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I think I've really tried to, as I shepherd women locally, um, really invite them to consider their sister and their brother. And really, mm-hmm. I'm trying to be very diplomatic with my answer, as you can see, but I'm really trying to <laughs> invite them to um, consider all as they vote and never associate their politi- politics to their faith. Their, your faith must be must come before your politics. Your humanity must come mm-hmm. before your politics mm-hmm. and it must instruct your politics. Therefore, you mm-hmm. are you are not married to the Republican Party as a follower mm-hmm. of Jesus. I think especially when you think of our geopolitical makeup in the Pacific Northwest, that would be really dumb for me to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Good answer. Good answer. You, yeah. you handled can that I, one, Can though. I, can I, can I add, can I do a little, uh, one B answer to that? Please. Sure. <laughs> yes. Um, ask somebody who speaks nationally and ask somebody who's brown and invited to majority white spaces. And I go speak at women's conferences where 99% of the attendees are white. That is 
particularly obvious that that is the way they live and breathe and operate, very live, laugh, love. Mm. And so (laughs) leaning into um, those spaces and and inviting them to consider another way of living, I consider an honor and saying, well, I'm here. I'm going to appeal to your humanity. I'm going to appeal to you vulnerably as a sister, as someone who doesn't look like you, probably someone who doesn't vote like you. Uh, who's had a different life experience, and I would encourage you to consider uh, other people's plight. So um, I'm, mm. I, I, I keep getting the invitations, and mm-hmm. I'm going to keep going because if, if this is who they're going to listen to, then I'm going to absolutely gonna do it. Right, and I think like take the mic. We've had yeah. this conversation of like when do you call in versus when do you call out, mm-hmm. right? And that mm-hmm. idea of like it sounds like you're talking about is like I'm going to try and call them in. Yeah, right. Like yeah. I'm going to try and invite them in, and um, <clears throat> and it takes all kinds. Absolutely. We, we do need people to call out, and we do need yes. people to call in. Yep. My temperament definitely leans more towards call in. Yeah, um, I'm a three on the Enneagram. <laughs> <laughs> the Christian astrology. I was waiting for you to drop Christian that astrology. this entire episode. <laughs> I was wondering when you were going to say you were a three on the Enneagram. <laughs> they probably figured it out. Um, but uh, I, I, I know the orchestra takes all, yep. all kinds, yeah. and so that's my, that's my chair in the yeah. orchestra. Yeah. Um, so we could have this conversation with you. Forever, I could sit here and listen to you talk forever. I have absolutely loved the conversation. Um, so thank you for again for being here. Um, before we kind of go into our last and final segments, what do you have going on? What next projects do you have? I just graduated from seminary yesterday. Congratulations. Yes. So I celebrated with some Ted Lasso red wine and um, <laughs> some my favorite street show tacos. Ever. It's life-giving. It's life. I've it's, watched season one three times like a crazy It person. is like a warm hug. Oh, it's yes. It's a warm at hug. Least three hug. Or three. Um, I tried to get Hope to watch, and she's like, I haven't watched it. What? Hope, <laughs> I I'm know. I don't have the login. I'll give you like mine. It's fine. It's I'll give so you mine. It's good. It's so don't good. Don't tell anybody. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I, yeah, next for me is more writing. Um, I am doing some DEI training for some nonprofits on how to address power dynamics in the workplace. Um, in fact, doing it for one of the largest <laughs> uh, Christian nonprofits in the world this week. Um, so really trying to, to continually put this in the, this information and this knowledge and this, um, intelligence that's needed in the hands of the people who can enact it. So men in power, honestly, men in power who yeah. want to lean in and learn and listen. Um, churches and so it's yeah, that's where I'm. That's where I'm at right now. Continuing to do the dang thing in the ordinary ways. Yeah, yeah. So we're gonna give a quick shout out or raise a glass of champagne. Champagne for my real friends. Real pain for my champ friends. And also a little bit of real pain. So, Megan, you have the perfect champagne. That's why I want to recognize it. I do, yes. So I want to raise a glass to all of the teachers that are back in the classroom. Um, They're showing up and teaching students all through a global pandemic. And I have just witnessed um, all of my coworkers showing up with a smile on their face and just, like, doing the absolute best that we can for our students. And just a huge (laughs) glass raise to all of them. Yes. Yeah, Tiffany, do you have anybody that you would love to shout out or raise oh, a glass to? Anyone come Mrs. to mind? Mrs. Friedland and Mrs. Roden, first and fifth grade, oh my, my kids too. You guys, I literally was like, should we just get them flowers for the first time? I just, <laughs> I just, teachers, you guys, I, this takes a village. I just, my, my husband's a former educator. Yeah. Um, 
and he comes from a family of educators. So I just, I think especially this year, I'm like, if we ever underestimate these people, how dare we? <laughs> they are the fabric of society. They are putting us together. I just, I, I literally cannot, I, I, even just the thought of my kids' teachers and teachers at large gives me like such appreciation and humility of what they're doing and what they're facing in a time like this. So a thousand thank yous, yeah. teachers. You doing the dang thing. Uh, so real pain. And I think we'd be remiss if we didn't shame a little bit of Texas. Oh. Megs. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> Texas passing their law, like essentially banning abortions and denying women access to health care. And then honestly, Greg Abbott's. Um, oh, Doug is like in the booth, like shame, the shame bell. Um, And essentially then Greg Abbott's interviews and press conferences since then and his responses to how there's not exceptions to incest and rape and how he's going to work to get rapists off the street. And if you don't listen to um, Saki's press conferences for the White House, you should because she is – she is a national treasure. Like she is our the White House press secretary is a national treasure and she is so good at her job. She is one of the most powerful women that I've ever witnessed. She just handles the room. She owns the room. And um, her response to a reporter asking about that statement was, well, I don't think that any man has ever 100 percent abolished rape in the streets. And if Greg Abbott has some magical solution to do that, I would love for him to share that with the world. Um, And it was just like this beautiful statement. Anyways, she's better than Hope Hicks, though. I mean, no, just by a small margin. (laughs) (laughs) Better resist. Like like legitimately, if like it is a master class in um, like public relations, watching her in these um, press conferences. Anyways, that's my little uh, spiel. The lack of nuance <laughs> by this governor, I think, is just, it's terrifying Yeah, how simple he he's decided to redu- <laughs> yes. reduce this to. Like, yes. just, it is, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. He and Florida's governor are two of the most vile men in power in our day and age. It's, it's like, really scary. Scary and it's vile. Scary. Like and like the thing with Greg Abbott is he's not afraid to say it like when they shut down, what, 600 voting um, stations like he wasn't afraid. like the more people of color have access to voting, the less Republicans are going to win. Like legitimately, like the man says it. Yeah. And it's terrifying because people still vote for him and Mm -hmm. he's still the governor and proximity to power. Matthew Matthew McConaughey, (laughs) Matthew McConaughey. This is this is our call to you for you to run for governor of Texas. <laughs> if you're listening to the show, it, please. <laughs> we we know that you are just a loyal listener. He's and, good people. He's right? good people. Like and he would. I think he would win. I think he would win governor of Texas. Like as much as we shamed like you know Schwarzenegger and Trump for like celebrity politicians. Like I think he would win and he'd be good for how Texas. Lose, how to lose a guy in ten days? It's such a good movie. You know, all right, Megan, wrap us up. Sorry. Megan. Um, so now we're going to move into the segment. Do your fudging homework. Interchangeable. White ladies. Um, this is where we just leave our listeners with just some extra homework that you have, or if they want to learn a little bit more about what we talked about today. So, do you have any kind of homework to leave our listeners with? Yeah, I would say. 
consider your own proximity to power and mm-hmm. what does that look like looking around your sphere who benefits from you being close to power who who is neutral yep. mm-hmm. and who loses out yeah. You first have to listen to the people around you and then learn how these things happen. Learn how abuses of power happen and lean in. Is there somebody who needs you to advocate, to be an ally, who can't go it alone? Because we often place the the onus on those who are the recipient of the, of the abuse of power to mm-hmm. raise mm-hmm. the raise the flag yeah. and move the needle. Mm-hmm. But actually, it's on all of us. We have mm-hmm. a moral and ethical, and if you're a believer, yeah. a Christian obligation to stand up and do those things. Mm -hmm. And to also consider your own power, your own platform, your race, your class, Mm -hmm. your physical size, and your gender. Run yourself through that matrix at all times when you're in a room because there is unsaid power at play wherever you go. I don't care if you're in line at Target or if you're in the boardroom, if you're in the classroom, or Mm -hmm. if you're in the choir room at church. You have power. So run yourself through that matrix and see how is that displayed? How am I leveraging my power for the advancement of those who have less? And how can Mm -hmm. I, again— Listen and be part of the answer, not the problem. Mm-hmm. 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 So mm-hmm. I think that's the perfect homework to leave us on. Yeah. Well, all I was going to say was go buy Tiffany's book. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. And it will be linked in our show so notes. So go if pick you up want. a copy of Pray Tell, yes. especially if, you, if any of this stuff resonated with you or you found yourself nodding or uh, amening in your car, wherever, whatever it may be. Yes. Awesome. Well, Tiffany, thank you so much for coming on the yeah, show. Thank you so much. It was such a great conversation. My honor. My absolute honor to be here. Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Did you know Channel 253 is member supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. With us today, we have a very special guest that I'm extremely excited to introduce. It is Tiffany. Well, I can't even say her name right now. It's the the easy one. It's the easy one. (laughs) Doug, I'm starting over. Doug, scratch. The Interchangeable White Ladies podcast is part of the Channel 253 network. Check out our other shows. Nerd Farmer, Citizen Tacoma, Crossing Division, Flounder's B-Team, We Art Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.